This is Bernadette Jiwa, author of Hunch. Turn your everyday insights into the next big thing. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Bernadette Jiwa to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her new book, Hunch, Turn Your Everyday Insights into the Next Big Thing. Bernadette Jiwa is a recognized global authority on the role of story in business, innovation, and marketing, and the author of five other best-selling books on marketing and brand storytelling. And since this is the Marketing Book Podcast, I'm going to name the books. The books are Make Your Ideas Matter, Stand Out with a Better Story, The Fortune Cookie Principle, The 20 Keys to a Great Brand Story and Why Your Business Needs One, Difference, the one-page method for reimagining your business and reinventing your marketing, marketing a love story, how to matter to your customers, and Meaningful, the story of ideas. Her last book, Meaningful, the story of ideas that fly, was featured in Inc. Magazine's Best Business Books of 2015. Her previous books made other best lists, including LinkedIn's 20 Books Every Marketer Should Read. She's been named as one of the top 100 branding experts to follow on Twitter, and her blog, The Story of Telling Dot com was voted as the best Australian business blog and chosen by Smart Companies, Australia's top business blog. But perhaps even more significant and impressive than that is that Seth Godin has named her blog as one of the marketing blogs he reads. Her work sees her advising, consulting with, and speaking to entrepreneurs, business leaders, and global brands like EA, LinkedIn, Zappos, and Adidas. And interesting fact, she grew up in Dublin, Ireland, and now lives on the other side of the world in Melbourne, Australia. Bernadette, congratulations on Hunch, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. That's the longest intro I've ever, ever heard. Well, it's <laughs> Thank a, you so much. It's a podcast about marketing books, so this is at least the one podcast where everybody wants to know the name of your other books and make sure they understand all about your background. Now, before we get started, I wanted to ask you about a quote. I think I read an article in Copyblogger. It said it was your favorite quote, and then you also included this at the beginning of Hunch, and it's from Seth Godin, and it's, you don't need more time, you just need to decide. Can you explain that quote and why it's one of your favorites? It's something that Seth has said to me, to my face, <laughs> and wow. also and also, it's something that he's written on his blog, and I think that's something that's really important. You know, we stall quite a bit when it comes to putting our ideas out there or having self-belief, and to me, it's one of the most potent things anyone has ever said to me. You try 
having someone look you in the eye and say that to you and call your bluff. I think it called our bluff. Oh, no question. It called my bluff when I saw it. And I've never met Seth Godin, but I could just imagine him saying it to me and I'd being appropriately uncomfortable. And I read that. And then today I cleaned out my whole uh, email. <laughs> email inbox. I started getting things done. So anyway, it has effect on people in different ways. So I wanted to start with an excerpt from the book to set the tone and help people get a little bit more background on the book. So I'm going to read this and then we'll uh, lots of things to talk about here. So it starts with, through my work in previous books, I've taken people on a journey that leads them from telling the story of their ideas to understanding what makes ideas fly. This book goes one step further. It tells the story of people who have practiced using what they know and questioning what they don't. Those successful entrepreneurs, creatives, and innovators, people just like you, who have harnessed their curiosity, empathy, and imagination, seeking out opportunities to invent, create, and serve. Every day is filled with those opportunities, either seized or missed, ours for the taking, if only we can learn to listen for them. Every breakthrough idea starts not with knowing for sure, but by understanding why it might be important to try. This book is a roadmap that invites you to learn from the successes of those who have gone before you, giving you the tools to notice more and to understand how to recognize opportunities that others missed and create something the world is waiting for. There are hundreds of books that can help you with the process of making ideas happen. This is the one you need before you get to the execution stage. It's an invitation to pay attention to your hunches, reawaken skills you've neglected or forgotten, and develop new capabilities you need. It's your guided practice to a new way of seeing the world and embracing your unique potential on the road to uncovering groundbreaking ideas. Intuition alone won't tell you exactly where X marks the spot, but it can give powerful clues as to where you might begin to dig. This is the book you need if you're ready to begin finding them. Thank you for allowing me to read that slightly longer excerpt, but it was it was so well written. And I wanted to ask you the first question, why is intuition more valuable than ever? Because, Douglas, it's the smallest insight that gives rise to breakthrough ideas. And I think we're forgetting that because as we go down this rabbit hole of big data, we're forgetting that people like Sarah Blakely, who invented Spanx, and Howard Schultz, who founded Starbucks, the guys who founded Warby Parker, they all started with a hunch without any data that this idea was going to work. It was just stuff that they had observed in their environment, things that they'd come across, tiny insights, and they said, you know what, here's here's a problem we think is worth solving. So I think it's really important to take a step back and think that, you know, everything that we can invent or be inspired by isn't already known. Right. And do you think that this perhaps over-reliance on data these days is pushing intuition even further aside or, or placing a value on it? I think so. You know, where was the data that gave us the iPhone or the GoPro camera or Tesla or baby carrots or adult coloring books? You know, data in my book teaches us how to make incremental progress and hunches invite us to make a leap into the unknown which can be a bit scary. Your book reminded me 
of another book I'd read and, and interviewed the author on the show, which was Small Data by Martin Lindstrom. Very different books. But some of the underlying threads I recognized, and then sure enough, you mentioned him in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for the work he does because he he goes out there into the real world and he looks at real world problems and and companies, you know, major corporations, even though they've got oodles of data, pay Martin to come in and say, okay, we've got all this information, but can you now go and speak to our customers or just watch them, observe them in their lives and see see what's up here? What connections can you make? So he is a phenomenal expert at connecting the dots for big brands. And in the book, you had mentioned that some of the biggest failures, I can't remember exactly where it was, but one of the biggest failures is companies just not talking to their customers, not understanding their customers. I think there was the story you had about the Spanx inventor as well as the yeah. bra inventor, if I if I recall that correctly. Yeah. Um, the Spanx story is an interesting one. You know, Sarah Blakely, who invented this women's shapewear, discovered that, well, firstly, there were a lot of men in the industry uh, creating this product that was for women. Secondly, they didn't speak to their customers. They didn't even try the prototype products on real women. They just used dummies. So they had no idea how this product worked in real life. They used one kind of elastic that was the same size, and they adjusted the sizing in some other way so that the product was really uncomfortable to wear. So they had zero understanding of what it felt like to wear this product and to use it every day. And that's how she stole a march on them, really, uh, from an investment of, you know, $5,000 to creating this global billion-dollar brand. Mm-hmm. And can you also tell the story of Goldie Blocks? It was a similar uh, wall that she hit, a couple different yeah. places. Yeah, so Goldie Blocks, it's a girl's construction toy, and that brand was developed by Debbie Sterling, who had an engineering degree from Stanford. And what she came across in in her career and through her personal journey was that there weren't 80% of engineers were men, and that was a set reflected. Those figures were reflected also in college, and she started to question why that was a thing and went out and looked in the real world and realized that girls were not playing with construction toys and then started to ask herself the question, well, why is that the case? Long story short, she she found that girls were really interested in storytelling and she wondered about connecting, building construction toys with the storytelling piece and created this toy, went to the toy industry with the toy, and they said to her, it's never going to work. Girls don't like building. They like playing dress up and stuff. So, again, she she found that this industry was dominated by men. Not that I'm knocking industries dominated by men. This just happens. These are two female stories here. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, right. And, true. yeah, and, you know, she she just went ahead and did it and 
the toy was successful, ended up in toy stores across America and Toys R Us. And, you know, she's she's still reinventing that brand. And she's had phenomenal success with Goldie Blocks. Well, they were such great stories of people that did things a bit differently and, and, and went through some of the, the aspects of how to go about doing this that are explained mm-hmm. in your book that we'll talk about in just a moment. Let's just step back to data one more time. You said data... That which we can easily measure is supposed to make us smarter, and maybe it can, but I'd argue that it doesn't always make us wiser. And then you go on to say that things are no different when it comes to evaluating the potential of ideas. How so? Well, I think we've touched on this already. You know, where was the data that gave us the iPhone, the GoPro camera, adult coloring book? If we were relying on that data, then those products wouldn't exist in the world. So it was the insights that saved it from the data? It's also the behavior of the people who invented the products. Okay. So it's, you know, this is a book about how we can not just get better insights, but how we can change our behavior to be the kind of people who do things like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, you know, you don't have to be them to do that. And you don't have to have the special resources or a bunch of data to do it. So you talk about we get facts and we we trust them, but we seem to question insights more. And that I guess in like we talked about that this data obsessed world is even more so. Why is that increasingly problematic that the insights are, it's like they're getting even shorter shrift than they used to. Is it because of the prevalence and belief in, in purely using data like we've talked about? There's a couple of things going on here. That's one of the things. The other thing is that intuitions had a really bad rap because of some of the incredible work of behavioral economists in the field of uh, decision making. So people like Professor Daniel Kahneman have pointed out quite rightly that our intuition is flawed as it relates to decision making. You know, we can, our, that that's a fact, it's flawed and it's also marvelous too, okay? It, it helps us in, in all kinds of other ways. But if you think about it, even in science, you know, intuition is the engine of discovery. Even scientists whose job it is to prove things start with a hypothesis. And one of the great things that came about as I was researching the book was how many scientists I could quote in here from Stephen Hawking to Einstein, people who are famous for, for proofs actually were recognizing that, you know, you needed to make this leap, intuitive leap, as, as Stephen Hawking calls it. So let's just frame the next question with the word Eureka or aha. <laughs> you you talk about the innovation epiphany and mm. explain what that is and why it's actually a myth. Well, we believe in this Eureka moment that, you know, it's just suddenly we're going to know the right answer. It's going to just drop on us. You know, if you think about this light bulb moment, we have this thing. If you Google ideas, you know, a hundred thousand images, a hundred million images, probably of light bulbs will uh, appear. Or um, apples the same falling moment. from trees. And and let's talk about Isaac Newton, right? So, That's right. so people will say, "Oh, isn't isn't insight uh, in and the eureka moment just like Sir Isaac Newton sitting under the apple tree? Well, and discovering his theory of gravitation. Well, 
It just so happens that that apple tree was planted outside his bedroom window. So I like to think about how many times he looked out at that apple tree while he was spending time thinking about gravitation and his theories or how many times he sat under that apple tree and how much practice he had at thinking and seeing patterns and connecting the dots. And we don't know the backstory. We just hear about the idea. Mm-hmm. Well, the story. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you know very well about the, the power of that, whether it's true or apocryphal. Mm. So can you explain also what the genius trap is? I think this is important for people who, like you talk about in the book, think that they're not capable of, of coming up with these good ideas. There are two ways to illustrate this, Douglas. If, if I asked you or anybody listening to close their eyes, they can do it now if, as long as they're not driving or running. If you close your eyes and I say to you, you know, what comes to mind when you think of genius – and I can guarantee it will be, it will, you'll get some results like you do when you search for it on Google. You will get pictures of Einstein and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk and light bulbs and academic scrolls. So that it's a very limiting belief that we have about what genius is. But I think it can be summed up best in this quote from Steve Jobs, which goes something like, Everything around you that you call life was made up by people who are no smarter than you. And we live under this illusion that you have to have an IQ of 140 plus or you need access to special resources to come up with these genius ideas. And my take on this is that genius is wherever someone is trying to find it. There's genius in a waitress juggling, you know, 20 tables of orders. There's genius in a nurse who is taking care of patients and knows exactly the right words to say to a bereaved relative. So there's there's different kinds of genius. And even when it comes to having ideas also, it's not just about going for this, making these technological or scientific leaps. Like a Mars landing or a <laughs> something like that. No. Ideas, though, you explain that they are overrated. Explain what you mean there. We tend to fall in love with our own ideas, and it's important to ask ourselves a a deep question, which is, how will this idea be meaningful to the people we hope to serve? So an idea is worthless unless it's adopted and used by people in the real world. If we think about some examples of that, you know, something like the Segway, for example, was a brilliant breakthrough. You know, you could imagine how excited the inventor was about that idea. And somehow it hasn't been embraced by people. And that idea didn't fly. It didn't become meaningful to the people it was designed to serve. So the idea in itself has no value if people are not going to adopt and use it. Can you explain the, the other concept from the book where people think that they'll find out about an idea and they'll say, I, I could have thought of that. You, you talk about that at the very beginning. Yeah, we've, we hold two ideas, I think, in opposition here about what it takes to create a breakthrough. You know, anybody could have done it. That was so simple. Anybody could have done it. You know, a stickman, a book about stickman drawings. That that's that's so easy. And then the other thing is only they could have done it. 
Yeah, you could have thought of that, but did you did you execute on the idea? Did you, you know it? That's that's also part of what makes ideas valuable is actually executing on them, having the courage of your convictions, and saying, "Yeah, or maybe this is so simple." You know, it's obvious, but I believe in it. I think people will be interested in it, and then I'm going to try and test it. Being in the agency business, when when you talk about ideas being overrated, it, it reminded me that you know, there are certain clients or, or uh, many people who think, oh, we need new ideas, we need new ideas. And it's like, well, you know, it seems like coming up with the ideas is really – after reading the book, it's it's really I, – I could see how they were overrated. It was really more of a ideas versus the right ideas. Mm, so what do you what's your response to that Douglas when you're in that situation where they say we need ideas mm, well yeah. what I try to do is bring them back to well what are we trying to accomplish mm. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. particularly if I can get it back to who's your buyer but I think that Earlier in my career, I worked on Madison Avenue in New York, and there I can just remember, you know, back when advertising was really, really powerful. And I can just remember there was this, they just wanted ideas. They just wanted more ideas. And it was sort of like, I can remember going into these boardrooms with lots of storyboards. <laughs> and yeah. may, maybe not a one of them would have been the right one for that TV commercial. So anyway, it just it, I, I reacted to that <laughs> in a way from my experience that brought up another story in my head. So the other thing I wanted to touch on, because there's a lot of listeners in California and in the tech world, and this is a special question just for, for them. Can you explain the concept of chasing unicorns? And why that's actually a fallacy, particularly when people use one of these tech startup unicorns as an example without having known what the actual backstory was. Well, that's the myth, isn't it, that a breakthrough idea has to give rise to a billion-dollar corporation. And it's because we hear about all these stories of these you know giants the ubers and the airbnbs and and that's what we think we're chasing even though you know i have massive respect for for the airbnb guys and and you know what they set out to achieve and and team at warby parker but we can change tiny corners of the world with our ideas you know i think about if we're thinking about in the tech world which is not an example in the book but jason freed always comes to mind and Basecamp and how they mm-hmm intentionally keep their business small in in terms of you know what would be regarded as successful in silicon valley so there's more than one measure of success and we tend to go for this valuation type measure instead of thinking about well what change are we trying to create and being very deliberate and intentional about the work that we're doing Back to Airbnb, there was another author, Sean Ellis, who was on the show recently. Mm. His his new book is Hacking Growth, and and he talked about how a number of the like the Airbnbs of the world they were selling cereal at one point. It wasn't going mm. well well for them, and That's they were not going well. And they were eating the cereal. It was like I think it was called Obama O's or something. But they mm-hmm. were just struggling, like so many companies. And then they continue through, but everyone, you know, sees where they are now and thinks that it was just always like that. So the breakthrough for Airbnb came when they actually, the rubber hit the road. When they went to New York, they went to their hosts and they spent time sitting with, I think they went around 50 hosts and they spent time with the hosts. And what I also admire about Airbnb and Brian Chesky and and the, the values of that company is that he, 
I'm not sure if he's still doing it, but for a number of years, even when they had reached a, a point of, you know, being funded and being successful, went round and he was a guest for, you know, 365 days of the year in Airbnb accommodation. He just spent time listening to hosts and spent time experiencing what it was to be an Airbnb guest. And as I recall from that other book, just they just stayed with it and they got really close to the people that they were customers or their guests. And then they figured out, separate topic, they figured out that the locations that had the best pictures were doing better. And that sent yeah. them off in another direction they never would have thought of, which was to go get a really good camera and start taking pictures. And sure enough, that was the they pulled that thread and it worked, but it was only after lots and lots of trial and error. So, and also going back to this idea of not knowing for sure, there were there are so many investors who did not invest in Airbnb that just said, "Oh, I don't know. It just doesn't, you know, travel just isn't hitting the right button for us right now." And oh, I think I quote some figures in the book. I can't remember them off the top of my head, but you could have bought. Was it like a hundred fifty thousand dollar investment would be like two yeah. and a half billion now? Yeah, exactly. Something like that. You know, a 10% chunk in Airbnb for 150000 Not that many years ago, if you Google the article, Brian Chesky writes about it. So it's even the people with the data and domain knowledge and expertise who have invested in hundreds of companies don't know which idea is going to work. It's the same with marketing books or any kind of book. We're not really sure what's going to work. The publishers don't really know. They have to make a bet too. So let's move on. Talk a bit more about intuition where you you say that we all use we all use intuition to make business decisions. Where I guess whether we want to admit it or not, and and it's not even fashionable to admit it that you're using intuition. Is, Is there something to be gained by admitting that we make business decisions based on intuition? I mean, it seems like well, it would be a sign of weakness for a lot of people. <laughs> well, it it might be a sign of weakness, but it would be also a sign of honesty. Because if we did that, we'd all then understand that it's okay to take risks. You know, if you think about your example, the Madison Avenue example, you know, you present all these storyboards or campaigns to people. And you have no idea if if the campaign will work. It's it's a case of you get the executives in the room and they go, I like that. That's that that just seems to, you know, that seems to convey what I I believe our brand is about. And they run with it. They if you said to them, why did you go with that idea? They just rationalize. So I think you know we know we're taking risks, but we don't want to admit that we're taking risks. And I think if we were more honest about that, then we'd understand that it's okay to take risks and that every day we do things that might not work. And sometimes they do. And, you know, we have to get comfortable with that. Well, let's hope that your book brings intuition further out of the closet. (laughs) I hope so. So another thing that got me thinking, and of course, that's one thing I hate to do is have to think, but your your book got it working. So congratulations. You explain that creative solutions often begin by reimagining the problem Mm. or or reframing the starting point versus, I guess, trying to fix the problem. Can Can you say more about that? The best example I can give you is a story from the book about the carrot farmer, Mike Urasek. And, you know, what people maybe don't know is that a lot of produce is wasted. Tons and tons of it is wasted every year because it doesn't look good enough to go to the supermarket. People, 
you know, you, you know when you're in the grocery store, you pick up a vegetable or a fruit and you examine it. If it's got a bump or a dent in it or it's not perfect, a perfectly round apple, you put it back. So these farmers are, were wasting tons of produce and he was really frustrated by that. And so instead of trying to grow a more perfect carrot, he, he came up with this solution, which was, well, what can I do to the, these carrots that are misshapen that might make them more attractive to customers? And what he did was he peeled them and shaped them and started, created this thing called baby carrots, which you know, it reinvented the carrot industry, it uh, shot sales up, it actually created more value for the stores and for the carrot farmers, because you can charge more for something that's pre-prepared. Um, so it was just coming at the problem from a different angle. Yes. And now my wife gives lots of baby carrots to her, <laughs> to her horses. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> nothing's too good. Don't they have the misshapen ones? They don't have. They don't have the, the no, normal cap. No, no. She'll say, "Oh, can you go to the grocery store? Like, it's not about getting food for the family. Can you get a big bag of those baby carrots for the horses? <laughs> so, Premium horses. Yes, that's right. That's right. So that doesn't make any sense. And I don't think the horse really. I know the horse doesn't care, but it, it means something to her and her horse friends. So. And isn't that interesting? Let's talk about, you know, marketing from a marketing point of view. It's, you know, the, what he did took carrots, you know, beyond this commodity piece. You know, your your wife feels like she's got this emotional connection to the horse. She wants to give the horse a treat. Yes. And it reminds me of the story you told in your TED Talk that we're going to include in your show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, where it's more about how she feels than the facts. Exactly. So there's one other part I wanted to ask you about, and that is that to come up with killer hunches, there are basically three qualities over time that people need to have, which are being curious, empathetic, and imaginative. Can you walk the listener through a bit of that, which is a pretty big part of the book? It's a huge part of the book because when I sat down with it and tried to decode what it was that brought these you know, made these people who they are. If if I'm going to tell you that it's not, it wasn't Steve Jobs' IQ or his, you know, the fact that he was in, in the right place at the right time, what was it about him? What is it about someone like Elon Musk or Sarah Blakely or the carrot farmer? What is it about them that makes them different? And it's those three qualities uh, that we can all cultivate. So curiosity and, you know, noticing things and questioning why things are the way they are and why they shouldn't be that way. Being empathetic is really important because go back to the Segway example. Yes, you can be curious about reinventing a new mode of transport, but if you don't think about how people are going to feel when they stand in that thing, uh, are, do they feel like they're going to look silly, and on and on, you have to question that. So you have to put yourself in the place of the people you are inventing for, and then imaginative, making those creative leaps, which we need to do, which is projecting into the future about you know what the future might look like, going beyond what we already know. Well, you walk the reader through these three things as well as practical exercises, which are very interesting. And I think towards the end, you explain that, you know, people might say, okay, I, I get the curious thing and I can develop 
perhaps further my sense of empathy or I, I have a, a sense of empathy. But when it comes to the imaginative part, why is it do you think that people think, oh, no, that's for, that's for the geniuses? That's, that's for the Steve Jobs of the world. I can't, I can't do that. Well, if you think about what, how we frame imagination in our minds, we think that it's for people like you who work in the creative industries or, you know, people in London design schools or Silicon Valley incubators, that you've got to have, work in paint and canvas and moleskin notebooks. And we feel like that isn't open to us because we're not that kind of person. As I say in the book, it it's, it's, feels like imagination is subject to this kind of fairground height restriction that you need to be this good to ride. And uh, we didn't have that when we were kids. <laughs> so we have to get over that limiting belief. Well, you know, the imaginative part for me, it brought to my years ago, I was in the, Ar- the U.S. Army, and I can remember mm. meeting you know, I, I once heard you'll meet some of the smartest and maybe some of the dumbest people in the, in the military, but I can remember there were a number of people who maybe they weren't, some of them weren't educated, but they were clearly some of the most, I, I think there were some geniuses, like some of these, <laughs> some of the mechanics or these people who you could just, it was really almost more on display than you would see in an academic setting. Their ability to solve problems so creatively, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was very, very interesting. I've got a good example close to home. I mean, one of my sons just finished an architecture and design degree, and he's now working with his hands in a workshop, which he loves doing, making uh, kids' playhouses from wood. And I texted him a picture of something the other day, which was a doorstop, and he just, you know, recreated that just from looking at it and brought it to me in his own way and started showing me all these different features of this thing. It can lie on its side, it can do this, it can rock. And, you know, there are different kinds of intelligence, and we all have access to them. We you know, we're not limited to saying, well, I'm, I'm the sciencey person or, I, you know, I'm the creative person. We all have access to, to these things, these skills, uh, if we care to use them. Mm-hmm. And that brings to mind the story back at the Goldie Blocks where there, there might have been, a, there's a, certainly some cultural barriers there. They're thinking, oh, no, the girls aren't, you know, they, they, they need to go into this other field. And I was just amazed at how dominated, I think you talked about the statistic of, how lopsided the males are in in engineering, and I just yeah, wonder how much 80%. of that is. Yeah, yeah, I wonder how many of them are simply listening to some sort of false narrative about oh that's not that that's for boys. <laughs> and she also she also said that it was to do with the education, you know, how we're educated and. Obviously, you know, girls develop these language skills much more quickly and they want, they're keen to develop them. So she married the two, which, you know, they, once they have the, they excel in the language skills, but they then don't develop the spatial awareness skills because they're not ongoing playing with construction toys. So she married the two skills and, and that helps the girls to develop their spatial awareness. So Bernadette, if readers took only one thing away from the book, which is not a fair question, what would you hope it would be? I love this line, which is, our job isn't to play every possible note. It's to play one note every day that we're proud to have played. I feel like we see so many opportunities in front of us and we have, you know, it's almost like we want to go for everything 
and we don't have to we have to put ideas and thoughts and work out there that we're proud to have done I think if we can do that if we can chase that instead of chasing the dollars and the success then I think that that will serve us well I, I probably appreciate that even more having read the book as to why that's such a such an important takeaway what books have inspired your work and career can I talk to you about three authors? Because everything they've written is phenomenal. Please. Seth Godin. Yes. Okay. Yeah, everything. Yes. You've got to read everything he's written. Yes. Uh, I think I heard Todd Henry on a podcast the other day, who's the author of The Accidental Creative, another amazing author, say, you know, when when Seth speaks, he feels like it's a fire hose. He's just been fire hosed with all this good stuff of information. So Seth, Malcolm Gladwell, he's just a phenomenal storyteller and excavator of interesting ideas. And Alain de Botta, which maybe some of your readers aren't familiar with, he's a philosopher, but really taking philosophy into the modern day in ways that are really useful to us. He wrote one of, actually, he wrote the most popular article, I think, on in... 2016 at that on the New York Times with the most compelling title if you're if you're a marketer you'll be interested in the title which is why you will marry the wrong person oh we'll make sure to put a link to that yes yeah yeah so his work is he has written a bunch of books that are incredible and the work he does at the school of life is also incredible well, I know less about him, so I'm going to want to look into that. So I appreciate you mentioning him. Are there any other uh, recent or upcoming books you've heard about that you either recommend or are looking forward to, to seeing come out? My current obsession is Elon Musk because I'm into, at the moment, studying, you know, deconstructing these patterns of behavior and in people who are successful, not so much in their circumstances and you know resources but what makes them tick what was their backstory you know how they communicate their story how they get people how they lead and get people behind them so elon musk by ashley vance is one that i am have queued to read since you mentioned elon musk can you tell the it's at the very end of your book where you talk about what really motivates him as well as his fear in people, I I read this quote that said, you know, when he announced one, I can't remember which project it was. One of the, you know, people would say crazy, you know, out there leaps that he makes. And somebody said, well, one of Elon Musk's greatest strengths is that, or probably his greatest strength, that is he's fearless. And I just think that's rubbish. <laughs> He's not fearless. You can't possibly care about an idea that you want to bring into the world and not, and then simultaneously not care if it's it doesn't work. Of course, he cares about these ideas working. He just manages somehow to get over the fear for long enough to push through it and and give it a go. And then the more often he does that, the more confidence he has and the more faith he has in his ability to trust his judgment and and live with the uncertainty and trust his gut and go while you were talking i was able to find the passage in the book where yeah okay it, you said that with the very end of it you said the difference between musk and many of us is this what he fears more than failing is not giving it his best shot 
Yeah. That really hit me when I read it. So I'm glad you included that. It was quite an end of the book. So how best can listeners learn more about you and Hunch? My website is thestoryoftelling.com. I blog there three times a week and people can uh, read the blog there. The, the details of my books are there and also the book has a website which is hunch.how. Hunch.how. And we'll make sure to include links to all of those in the show notes at Marketing Book Podcast. So Bernadette, the name of the book is Hunch. Turn your everyday insights into the next big thing. The author is Bernadette Jiwa. Bernadette, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. It's been a privilege. I've loved speaking to you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.